Because it's so loud and so extreme, heavy metal is one of the genres that makes it easiest to interrogate existing power structures head on, including conventions around gender and sexuality. Metal was a huge pop culture visible foray into BDSM themes on screen. Whether or not people were categorically understanding that, but in the 80s, yeah, big time. That's Miko Caporel, author of the forthcoming 33 and a third book on Motley Crue's Shout at the Devil. In this episode, Miko and Vic Creature of the doom metal band Vile Creature chat about the ways metal reroutes conventional flows of power sometimes offering plausible deniability for covert expressions of queerness, even on a mainstream stage. I'm Sasha Geffen, a music critic, journalist, and author of the book Glitter Up the Dark, How Pop Music Broke the Binary. This is Shattering Gleam, a podcast on music, gender, and the place where they collide. If you've ever even seen just a parody of a heavy metal performance, you've probably picked up on the fact that there's a lot of gender going on in this genre. It's there visually, in the big hair, expressive costuming, wild gestures, and sometimes outrageous makeup. And it's there in the sound, which is loud, extreme, and often involves intense vocal theatrics. The genre now known as heavy metal started to crystallize around the end of the 60s. It evolved from the psychedelic rock and acid rock subgenres. The long hair was a holdover from the hippie movement, but the sound started to get simpler and heavier and the lyrics started to deal with the supernatural and the occult. A lot of rock historians claim either Black Sabbath, Led Zeppelin, or Deep Purple as the first metal band. I agree with Hunter Hunt Hendricks of the black metal band Liturgy when she frames Jimi Hendrix as its main progenitor. Hendrix was an American living in London during the peak of a transatlantic musical conversation between the United States and England that gave rise to heavy metal. As early as 1967, he was putting out songs like Purple Haze and I Don't Live Today that matched the weight, propulsion, and fantastical lyrics of music that would go on to be dubbed metal. In the decades to follow, metal would gain momentum and carve out a distinctive sonic and visual identity. Bands in the new wave of British heavy metal like Motorhead, Judas Priest, and Iron Maiden would in turn inspire an 80s wave of glam metal, giving rise to more flamboyant and pop-oriented bands like Def Leppard, Bon Jovi, and Motley Crue. While metal songs topically run the gamut, one consistent theme is power. A lot of metal songs are about assuming power through fantasy, musical prowess, and sheer volume, but almost as many are sung from the perspective of objection and powerlessness. The ability to toggle back and forth between these extremes has made the genre fertile terrain for exploring gender and queerness in ways that haven't always been socially acceptable outside of extreme music. So with me today to talk about the history of heavy metal and its intersections with 
queer expression. Our Vic Creature from the metal band Vile Creature and Miko Caporal, listings coordinator at the Chicago Reader, culture writer and author of the forthcoming 33 and a third book on Motley Crue's Shout at the Devil. Thank you both so much for joining me today. I'm so excited to be chatting with you both. Thank you for having us. <laughs> yeah, it's so, nice to be doing a social thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's nice. Yeah, definitely. Nice to be chatting, even at a distance. So the history of really a lot of music, a lot of like rock music, pop music is there's this kind of trend of Americans making a style of music and then British people kind of like copying it, right? Like, and then that reverberating back and forth, like Brits copying Americans and Americans copying Brits copying Americans, which I think you hear a lot in the development of of metal um, in that, you know, a lot of the sounds in the 60s are like derived from from blues and then you know you get people like Jimi Hendrix like using guitar in like really specific ways that are then like copied or you know borrowed by uh by bands like Black Sabbath and and the the new wave of of British heavy metal uh what do you think gets evolved in each of these like reverberations or like what what do you hear kind of like changing across each of them with hair metal specifically one thing that when people talk about scenes of music it's really easy to project generalizations and oftentimes i think the politics can be pretty diverse and diffuse and that what unites these scenes more is an attitude and a way that people are coming to experience the music and the cultural norms that they're willing to accept when they're in that space. So I think that is kind of something interesting about how if you talk about metal and rock music and how it was being volleyed back and forth between Britain and the United States between the 70s and 80s. David Bowie tried to take off in New York initially, like that was his first real big entryway into the United States and New York and like the New York punks were like, what is this? But then in LA, where they had this long legacy of these British rockers coming and then Rodney Bingenheimer, who had all these connections in the UK and was into the sort of like um, sort of slayed glam rock scene, he was able to sort of be like, hey, you guys already like this other British kind of music what about this guy? And so I think that was central of like British, like importing. So it really brought something new. And I think something about the queerness and the flexibility of LA and how that was manifesting differently from New York was a little bit more central to why. Because yeah, the LA punk scene like had a lot of gender fluidity. It had a lot of playing with sexuality and making that like a lifestyle, something to experience. Really good point that, you know, the United States is not just like one culture, right? And so yeah. it's like transatlantic <laughs> reverberation. There's like different things kind of like taking off in different places. It like reminds me of the, 
you know, the story of like the Velvet Underground, like trying to tour in California and like them being like this very like New York band and like wearing all black and being kind of like reserved. And everyone in L.A. is just like, what is this? Like, what are you doing? Why are you doing it this way? Yeah, I think industry has a lot to do with it, especially when you get with something like hair metal and you're like, well, why did that happen in that moment at that time? Well, A, MTV. Um, So you're taking music and like suddenly the visuals are really important in a way that they were not. But then you also have this whole the culture and industry of Hollywood, which is already plugged into and like has the infrastructure to think about things in terms of sound and image. Whereas like New York's more theater, even when you look at like these hair metal bands, like a lot of them ended up migrating to L.A. because they were like, there just isn't enough of this in New York or along the East Coast to support this. I just watched the Anvil documentary, which is a Toronto hair metal band or heavy metal band. And basically they were considered, you know, the OGs of that genre, but they never saw commercial success. So the documentary is kind of following and exploring how that band kind of flopped. And they're based in Toronto, Canada. So... (laughs) Maybe like that's a variable where they're just like, well, Southern Ontario, Toronto, Canada didn't really like, I don't know. It's just something happened where like, you know, they had everything going for them that other bands like Metallica, all those kind of <laughs> bands had going for them and nothing really uh, came of it. But the funny thing is that like after that documentary aired, they started getting a lot more opportunities and recognition. Miko, you were talking earlier about how like one politic or like one kind of like cultural tendencies kind of mapped onto each wave of of music, even though it's like generally much more complicated. And I think like one of the big narratives around the the new wave of British heavy metal, you know, like Iron Maiden, Def Leppard. Metal offered an opportunity for straight white working class men to affirm their masculinity, their heterosexuality outside of like bourgeois convention. So, you know, even if you weren't middle class, upper class, you could still like have masculinity through music that and, and culture that was like very loud and distinctive in that way. But do you think that the same emphasis on power outside of traditional channels made metal to appeal to people who weren't straight white men who didn't fit into that narrative? A lot of it operates on like traditional themes of love, romance, sex, because, you know, we're all teenagers, even adults, we're all horny. So there's like, you know, that aspect of like the extremeness of those feelings. But then there's the other thing of like railing against different authority figures. Fuck your teachers, fuck cops, like fuck your boss. So like, how is that not appealing to a broad audience of people who feel alienated at their jobs or alienated? And like the circumstances of why they come to that level of alienation may be quite diverse, but it's such a unifying feeling to be like, jobs suck. There's like a very particular hair metal trope If you go back and watch the videos, Britney Fox has this, um, Motley Crue has this, where oftentimes they would start with Poison Had It, where they would start it with a face-off between a character and an authority figure. The authority figure is varied, but that fundamental sense of when I escape into this music, I'm in control and I have power and I'm connecting with other people who sympathize with that need for that control and that power that I'm not being able to experience in my everyday life. I could wax 
poetic and like talk about like the deep intersections of like, oh, capitalist alienation. I mean, isn't that fundamentally kind of what poison is expressing without dressing it up or without like the deep seated like class analysis? Like they're not making music expressly pushing for liberation, but the sentiment that they're getting at, that's exactly what a lot of these critiques were rooted in. I mean, I think like metal opens up an opportunity to talk about various forms of power and various forms of domination, um, even though it's like like sometimes it's more critical, you know, like some bands are more expressly like about critiquing power. Other bands are more just about like assuming it. I want to step back for a second to home in on a Motorhead song from their 1979 breakthrough album Overkill. So Motorhead was one of the key players in the new British wave of heavy metal and are probably best known for their songs about gambling, partying, and murder. They cultivated a pretty hard image overall. And yet the fourth track on the album is a song called I'll Be Your Sister, which Lemmy originally wrote for the rock singer Tina Turner. The lyrics enumerate all these different female roles the speaker is offering to play for someone. Sister, lover, mother. It's uncannily similar to the lyrics of a Prince song from the same year, I Want to Be Your Lover. Motorhead couched the same sentiment of wanting to relate to a woman as a female figure in a heavy, aggressive setting, putting so many spikes in it that no one called them out for being insufficiently masculine. Metal provided cover for even the most masculine of men to fantasize about being women. Vic, I wanted to ask, do you, do you think that queer listeners and performers have a different relationship to these simulations and critiques of power than straight fans and artists? Yeah, I feel like queer people have always been here in so many different genres and metal is just perfect for just like people who need to escape into a different reality and to have catharsis. The community that we kind of occupy is called doom metal. I feel like there are undertones of melancholy and deep sadness and depression and obviously there's so many things that people get from the music that is uplifting at the end of the day. Like we all listen to music to get something positive from it, I think. Every, everyone needs uh, their niche, you know, to feel like unique and important and like, you know, heard in a community where like we're all feeling alienated by some form of like capitalism, like things that are crushing us on a daily basis. We need, uh, you know, cathartic outlets. And it makes sense that there's just like this like really aggressive, just like gnarly wave happening of queers just like deciding that they want to take up space in metal communities. There's just like so many like subgenres that kind of go off of doom metal that I'm, I'm seeing and I'm loving. We have to talk about Judas Priest a little bit, just as kind of like a band that focused a lot of the sound and look of heavy metal as it kind of made its evolution from the 70s into the 80s, and also a band that was fronted by a gay person, although Rob Halford didn't come out until like the late 90s, I think. Um, So while I was researching this episode, I came across this interview where Sylvie Simmons basically comes right out and asks Rob if he's a gay Leatherman. Um, kind of like, it's like kind of tongue in cheek, um, but she says it. And, you know, I think 
the aesthetics that priests deployed were like really clearly identifiable as coming from gay subculture. If you were familiar with them, like the leather, the studs, the hat, like all of the the outfits that they wore were connected to that subculture. But that association, like the fact that they were wearing them so openly didn't stop their cultural ascendancy around the early 80s, which was not necessarily the easiest time to be famous and gay. How did Judas Priest walk that fine line of saying just enough but not too much in how they presented themselves, do you think, Miko? So much of that is easy to see in hindsight because we're so familiar with the signs and signifiers that it's hard to imagine a time where there was such an understood in-group and out-group that people who were outside of the group could treat it as spectacle. They could treat it as spectacle in a way where they could divorce it from the origin because they didn't know what it was. Part of it is like, there was an understanding within those subcultures of like, you could, you know, within that subculture, you could be like, is he one of those? But it's like plausible deniability, perhaps. It was this sort of don't ask, don't tell of just like, if you were meant to know, you knew nobody would like say it because there was like an understanding of like, that's your private life. And publicly, we can share this together. And whatever you do privately, that is between you and this other person. And so to some extent, that is like internalized homophobia and like a culture of denial. But it also afforded a lot of safety to people like Rob Halford, where he could openly be borrowing from elements of the subculture that he was entrenched in and do it quite publicly in a way where people who weren't meant to understand were entertained by it. It was almost like exploiting their ignorance in a powerful way to be to be able to draw on like the culture of power and domination that is connected with. BDSM and leather and all that. So it was like this confluence of people who were borrowing elements from these scenes, but doing it in a way where they were taking it to audiences who didn't understand what these objects were rooted in. Metal was a huge pop culture visible foray into like BDSM themes on screen, whether or not people were like categorically understanding that but in the 80s yeah big time it's just like the fact of like flaunting taboos yeah like fun and exciting and it doesn't really matter what they are necessarily all the time it's just like you're breaking a rule yeah it seemed like there was some real possibilities for like mainstream subversions when it come to like gender expression it just seemed like a lot of the bands at that time in the mainstream getting notoriety uh were like flirting with it for like commercial gain and i wish it went further there's so much authentic expression but it is really a big bummer <laughs> When like all of that like amazing creativity and just like excitement for like expressing yourself and expressing like politics of like liberation and stuff like seems to like always be like co-opted and packaged into something that's more uh, palatable. I think that like one thing that's always kind of like set metal apart to some degree, like obviously, you know, there are waves that are very, very highly commodified and like a band like Metallica is basically just like a mainstream pop band at this point. Um, but I feel like there is something 
about just the volume and like the amplification, the loudness, the aggression of like the way that metal music sounds that is somatically overwhelming, right? It's like kind of disarming when when things are really loud and someone's screaming at you. Yeah, like going to a show, the experience of that is hard to capture and like uh, an album commodity sometimes. Like there's not really any replication of just like going to a show and like feeling everything around you and getting that experience. Do you think that the sheer sensory overload, that like visceral overwhelm of this kind of music that can help break people out of like their habitual ways of moving and thinking about like things like gender or just things like power, things in general. If people are on a trajectory to figuring out themselves, I think that novel experiences or just like something that's like cathartic and to just like feel attached to life in general could just like get people into like the headspace to start thinking about other things and Pushing boundaries will make them question their own identities. In addition to just like amplification is kind of like an intervention into the body. There's a lot of metal songs historically about like cars and motorcycles and machinery and like, you know, running on on a combustion engine as like a, a human human motorcycle cyborg the special edition or cover of like lady gaga's born this way has her like head on like a motorcycle and it's not all metal music but she worked with Mutt Lang on that record and it's definitely like an homage to like this 80s era of turbo musicians and songs about like turbo power being a turbo lover turbo lovers yeah <laughs> mika what what kind of gendered implications do these mergings have you know like what what use is gender when you're a half skeleton half robot riding a motorcycle in the post-apocalypse i think for many queer listeners experiencing that that was a moment for them but for other people i don't think it's necessarily that deep the 70s and the 80s when there were these more highly visible questions about like the potentials of technology and you've got stuff like Mad Max on TV. You've got movies like Blade Runner, which are all movies that like if you scroll through interviews with people like, you know, Marilyn Manson would talk about what a huge not just aesthetic, but conceptual influence Blade Runner was for him when he was in his mechanical animals era, which is also coincidentally the era that I fell in love with Marilyn Manson. Like when he came out with mechanical animals and I saw him on MTV, like with breasts, but like no genitals. And it was like a quote unquote female body, but it had been almost degendered or desexualized. De and therefore, because sexuality had been divorced from it, it felt degendered for me. But in some ways, it felt like the first time that I was seeing a body like mine in a way where I was feeling the alienation I felt from my body in the way that I didn't feel sexy in the body that I had, like I felt almost like this weird cyborg animal and that I was playing with all these gender signifiers to try and come up with a way that like felt appropriate. And so to then find out that he's looking back to these movies of like Blade Runner, where the fundamental questions are like, when you alter yourselves, how, how much of yourself can, is like, true and authentic and reprogrammable and how much of is that like social learning and social coding that intuitive stuff versus something hardwired and like 
Is it actually concretely written into, you know, your DNA or your programming as a robot? And, you know, that opened up my mind to like body modification and like stretching my ears, getting tattoos. And of course, all of that stuff is heavily linked to like BDSM culture and queer culture. And so many of the arguments that we hear against trans surgery and gender hormone therapy and things like that. It's like, well, those were also the arguments that people were making against like just getting a freaking tattoo. But then there's also these ideas that, you know, are embroidered through techno and other kinds of music of like, the body being, you know, being a worker and being like automated to go through life and then to then transition into, well, if I'm the bike or if I'm the car, I can drive myself wherever I want to be. I don't have to be like an automaton at the factory or whatever. Um, so it opens up sort of freedom and possibility of new movement. Being able to embrace your machine elements can open up fantasy spaces of where else you can go. Any question involving like cyborg, just like realities, I'm all for. I think <laughs> yeah. those kind of themes are so exciting because they could go into like just a really cool conversations about like what it means to be a human. Ugh, just like self-expression, like could be a form of like taking power over your body when like in a world where like, you know, transness is seen as subversive, which is weird because all bodies should be normalized. I just relate to like altering the self. The idea of like transhumanness and body modification, like explore like the limitations of what we could actually do. In addition to the visual androgyny that metal enabled, there's also a sense of vocal androgyny that permeates the genre. From some of the earliest metal records, both male and female singers could sing in overlapping ranges using some of the same vocal techniques. There are some incredible falsetto moments on the 1970 album Deep Purple and Rock by Deep Purple, where lead singer Ian Gillen sounds like he's both in absolute terror and maybe reaching a peak of sexual excitement. Ozzy Osbourne of Black Sabbath and Robert Plant of Led Zeppelin had similar moments throughout their discographies, too. As you get into the 80s and the MTV era, a mixed register vocal style became popular among hair metal bands and artists that were considered more in the vein of hard rock largely because of their gender. Bands like Heart and Joan Jett and the Blackhearts had singles that, to my ears, had a ton in common with Def Leppard, Poison, and Motley Crue especially when it comes to how the voices sound. And like Judas Priest, Joan Jett likely conveyed taboo forms of sexuality in plain sight, using her towering sound as cover. I want to ask one more question, and it is about the voice, because I feel Yes, because like I was like, every... we gotta get to Joan Jett. <laughs> we gotta get to Joan Jett. Um, so it seems like metal and hard rock and you know everything within the umbrella lends itself to a certain type of vocality where performers who are who are men are like launching up into this like mixed falsetto chest voice kind of range um that has this like amazing effect of sounding like partly metallic and like sounding really exciting and then you have someone like Joan Jett who's like who also has this kind of like gravelly voice and they're sort of like meeting each other in the middle Vic, as like as a metal vocalist, like what feelings and opportunities did that growly extreme type of singing open up for you when you first started doing it? When you're learning how to sing, there's a lot of resources out there to learn. 
you know, vocal coaches. When it comes to like extreme vocals, you're on your own when it comes to learning. There's no guidebook. Although there is <laughs> there is one vocal coach. It's called like the, the Zen of Screaming. Uh, this person who like guides people through like breathing exercises and stuff and tries to make sure people are are not gonna like fry their vocal cords so i try to get those kind of resources when i was starting just so i could have some idea where to start it's not a natural thing so you're kind of manipulating what is possible with the music kind of meshing your voice into that so it becomes an instrument at some point it becomes something that is so harsh but you can manipulate it into the sounds that are going along with it i've definitely become a lot more confident when it comes to that style of vocal and i think that a lot of people don't know where to start when it comes to letting go i think that's the key to it in a lot of metal performances is that like you kind of just let go of expectations and obviously when you're on stage there's a lot of anxiety when it comes to like people perceiving you uh and it and so you just really got to connect to the music and give up looking pretty because the faces you make are absurd and you just got to lean into that and i found it really cool to explore that side of myself hell yeah i love that because it's like one of the first things we're told not to do as little kids is you're not supposed to scream. And that's kind of around the same time that like gendering starts happening too, or like all of your like natural impulses are boxed into like one set of behaviors or another. So it's yeah. like no more screaming and no more behaving outside of your, your mm-hmm. cisgender expectations. Yeah. And, and trying to emulate different vocalists when I was learning, like obviously the metal community and like hardcore things that I enjoyed growing up. I, I don't have the same vocal range as those people. I grew up being socialized as a woman and we have different bodies. Finding a way that I could express myself and be like to sound the way I wanted to with my own body was just a little bit hard to come because I was trying to like manipulate my own voice to sound a certain way, but it, it doesn't work that way. You can't do like the pig squeals and stuff like that. One thing that I do think is really interesting about when people argue about what is or isn't metal, because especially about like popular 80s music, I do think there are some interesting gender dynamics about how that gate works with how the term metal gets applied. And so I think it's very interesting, like where the boundaries of acceptability get sort of implied and how heavily metal is defined in relation to like maleness and aggression. I mean, yes, obviously, like there's lots of women and female assigned at birth people who can pass as women who are really excited about like being aggressive and using their voices in these ways that like socially we're not necessarily encouraged to do. But then there's this other side of it of being like, well, okay, but if we are creating like a plurality of space and a plurality of experiences and expressions, like at what point do we say that is or is it true to the genre? It'd be cool if people could stop gatekeeping, just like women being pit against each other or just like feeling like they need to like compete. I, I, it'd be nice if there was less of that. Yeah. And I'm excited time. to see that like, you know, 
so many different marginalized identities like carving out space in traditionally like male dominated genres like I am so excited to see what happens down the line and like what possibilities are open when it comes to like styles and there's so much talent out there and I I would like to see people not having to like squish their desires to create into like one box of like oh I need to sound like this I need to look like this um like I guess we all think of that when we're when we're in bands and we're like we're creating music but at the end of the day like you are kind of creating a product but like you kind of have to keep those things in mind when you are putting yourself out into the world um like when you have a public persona I guess that's like the downside of it people perceiving you to be a certain way so you might be editing yourself to fit into those molds and it's hard to just like keep that um just to be genuine so you had mentioned Joan Jett and like her sort of like masculine bravado Joan Jett is such an interesting corollary to Rob Halford. But interestingly, like, A, a lot of people don't know she's gay, even though, like, her guitar is, like, littered with stickers for queer bands and, like, queer sex acts and stuff. And so I think that is such an interesting, like, pop culture touchstone of, like, here was somebody who was also drawing on the aesthetics of this subculture she was definitely a part of and she was manipulating it very publicly and she even says in interviews like i don't i don't have to talk to you about my sexuality everything you know about you need to know about me is in my music and she put out an album in the 90s that was like pretty overtly bdsm themes but it was just like she didn't address questions on it in the interview she just left the music and like those who were meant to get it get it and those who didn't did it you know if you contrast her with rob halford i mean a i think being a white cis man puts him in a little bit different of a strategic position but i think also you have these two examples of people who are were dedicated participants in leather scenes they didn't necessarily have to disclose that and we can point to how it's shaped their music and how it's shaped their audience without them ever having to overtly articulate that but also still maintaining some boundaries of like the people who are meant to know know and that keeps my life safe it keeps it interesting i find the partners that i need great Nowadays, there are so many like role models to look to to kind of just like help us out of the closet, perhaps. But yeah, I respect that if people want to like, you know, have a private life and they don't want to have to go through the struggles of coming out of the closet and like carrying that torch, that's their prerogative. Yeah, I feel like it's almost like more subversive in like a different way to have this like politics of refusal of just like, I don't need to say it because I'm already screaming it. Yeah, like. That's what I see in hindsight about Joan Jett, but also there's so many people who like can be out and loud about their identities and their queerness, in part because people like her and Rob Halford paved the way. (laughs) That empowered them to exercise a different kind of relationship and autonomy in their own lives and maybe even come out and be out and be loud about it. I think being more mysterious lends to people's imaginations more, you know, like people could just make up their own fantasies of what that person is. And I'm like, well, it's probably better. Miko, Vic, thank you both so much for this conversation. I've so enjoyed speaking with you. Oh, yeah. I'm excited to go listen to some queer metal now. Uh, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. In the decades since metal's commercial peak, a lot of acts outside the mainstream have used the genre to tease out questions of power and gender. 
In addition to Vile Creature, you have artists like King Woman, Thou, Backwash, Life of Agony, and Liturgy, all working under different parts of the far-reaching metal umbrella. Pushing sound to its extremes the way they do can help loosen up the ways power sets into consciousness. It can provide a new frame of reference for thinking about the way power structures become habituated. Metal softens the boundaries around everyday life, opening a pathway into the strange and supernatural. It's in realms like these that hybridity and monstrosity can thrive. In a genre where demons and the undead are par for the course, is it really that weird to stray outside of normative gender? What kind of social relations become possible when we start to think of monsters as our kin rather than our enemies? Thanks for listening. Want to hear the songs mentioned in this week's episode, plus more of my picks? Search for our official Shattering Gleam playlist on Pandora, or click the link in the show description. You can find Shattering Gleam on the SiriusXM app, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like the show, please rate, review, and share so other people can find us. Don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. Special thanks to all those who make this podcast a reality. Kelsey Albright, Sarah Bentley, Roger Coletti, Bill Crandall, Jen Derwin, Emily Doherty, Rachel Elias, Sarah Esikoff, Melissa Hicks, Mia Jung, Sade Robinson, Anthony Spera, Mike Spinella, Sam Termine, Chris Watherspoon, Teddy Zambetti, and of course, me, your host, Sasha Geffen. Shattering Gleam is a SiriusXM production. Serious XM Podcasts.